0: Hello everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're connecting with our ELA member from California. Joining us on the program is Dan Handman, partner at Hirschfeld Kramer, Dan, you were on the program earlier this year, so welcome back. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for
0: having me. Good to have you here. So we're talking today about the Private Attorney General Act, known as PAGA for short. It's an act under the California Labor Code. Dan will be explaining to us more about this act, and in particular, the impact of rulings by the California courts and his insights on PAGA's future in California. So, Dan, let's start here. Can you give us a brief explanation of what PAGA is and how it works? Sure.
1: So, PAGA has been referred colloquially by employment lawyers as the Sue Your Boss Law. And what happened was, so California, as you may know, is sort of a haven for wage and hour class actions. They're very easy to bring under California law. Wage and hour class actions are for damages, if you've been damaged by being underpaid or for missing a meal break or a rest break, getting a defective pay stub or something like that. Separate and apart from the damages that are available, the state can impose penalties on an employer. And the reality of the situation was that the legislature determined that the California Department of Labor didn't have the funds or the resources to seek those penalties. So what they did in 2005, they passed this law called PAGA, the Private Attorney Generals Act. And basically what they did was they deputized employees and plaintiff's lawyers to act in their place to recover those penalties. And the way that PAGA worked was the PAGA has a penalty section where it imposes a penalty for every violation for every, quote unquote, aggrieved employee. That's the standard that they used in the law and if you prevail or if you settle a case 75 percent of the recovery goes to the state of california 25 percent goes to the employees as a reward essentially for pursuing the case on their behalf and in addition the plaintiff's lawyers can recover attorney's fees which is what makes it appealing to them to pursue it but what really made paga difficult for employers is that the employee, the aggrieved employee, could not only sue on his or her own behalf, but on behalf of any other employee who was aggrieved. And so these penalties, which are typically $100 per violation, could conceivably add up very quickly when you're talking about a large employer with a large workforce who has a lot of employees who were all affected in similar ways. So that's essentially how it's been working for the last 15 plus years in California.
0: And how do you defend against one of these actions when brought?
1: So it's a good question. It's very hard to do it. So there are two features of PAGA that make it very difficult to defend or to keep the damages down. The first is that there's this legal terminology called standing. What standing means is that you have somehow... As an employee, you've been injured. They, the legal term they use is injury in fact. So you've actually been injured in some way, and that makes you, to use the term of the statute, that makes you aggrieved. What happened was that in a PAGA case, unlike a class action, in a class action, you have to prove that there are all sorts of common elements between the claims and that the class representative is aggrieved in the same way that other employees are. In PAGA, there's no class certification requirement. So it made it very easy to bring a claim in a representative way, where you're suing not only on behalf of yourself, but you are suing on behalf of other employees who are also aggrieved. And the second way that it made it difficult is that the cases that came out from the California courts said that you only had to be aggrieved in one way And if you were aggrieved in any one way, you could represent employees who are aggrieved in completely different ways. So take an example. Let's say I work for a company and I didn't get my meal period on one day. So it's just a single act that happened. I missed one meal period. All of a sudden now I am aggrieved. And because of that one mistake, because of that one error, I am now capable of representing other employees who not only missed meal periods, and who may have missed many, many more meal periods than I did, but I can also represent employees who were underpaid, who didn't get overtime, who didn't get a rest break, who weren't reimbursed for expenses. It runs the gamut. So one violation under PAGA could equal up to thousands and thousands and thousands of violations. And those were the two things that made PAGA the most difficult to defend
0: against. Now, you contrasted PAGA cases with a class action. How do they compare to a collective action under the Fair Labor Standards Act?
1: Yeah, so a class action in California is an opt-out action. What that means is that it's assumed you will be a member of the class unless you opt out of the class. Under the FLSA, and the same, by the way, is true for PAGA. Under the FLSA, a collective action, it's, it's an opt-in procedure where you have to, as an employee, you have to affirmatively say that you want to be a part of the class. In California, it works the opposite way, that you're assumed to be a part of it unless you say you don't want to.
0: And so in your experience, have plaintiff's lawyers typically brought PAGA cases separate and apart from claims under the FLSA?
1: You know what? In California, you almost never see an FLSA claim. I honestly, as I sit here right now, I've been in California for over 17 years, and I can't remember the last time I had an FLSA claim. They're always brought under state law. And the reasons for that are twofold. Number one, the procedures are easier, right? You don't have to have people opt in. And then the second reason is that the damages, generally speaking, are higher, and there are more different types of violations under California law than under the FLSA. So because of those two things, it's very rare that you see an FLSA case in California. Plus, as a general principle, employees would like to remain in state court if possible, and it's harder to get them into federal court than if there's a federal claim involved.
0: So what was the issue that the U.S. Supreme Court recently dealt with in addressing PAGA?
1: So the Supreme Court took up cert, which meant they decided to review a case of whether you could force employees to arbitrate PAGA claims on an individual basis and waive the right to bring them on behalf of other aggrieved employees. And sort of the backdrop to that was essentially this. About 10 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court decided this case called Concepcion, I think it was Concepcion versus AT and T Mobility, and the question in that case was, could a company or could a moving party force an arbitration of a claim that had a class action waiver, meaning you were waiving your right to bring the claim in a class action? And the answer that the Supreme Court came up with in that case, in a very split decision, was that yes, you could. And the reasoning that they gave was that class actions because of their size, and because of the complicated nature of the cases, were inconsistent with the notion of arbitration. Arbitration is supposed to be streamlined, it's supposed to be quick, it's supposed to be uncomplicated. I can tell you as an aside, as a practitioner, I've never found that to be the case, (laughs) but at least that's the purpose behind, the reasoning behind why arbitration is favored. And so as a result, class actions which are complicated which are long and which take a long time to resolve are inconsistent with the purpose of arbitration at least that's what the supreme court said so in this case they were faced with a different beast which is paga paga is different than a class action there is no class you aren't certifying it you don't need to get it approved i mean actually you do need to get it approved by a judge but you don't need to get a class certified so the question was. In a PAGA case, could employers have a PAGA waiver in an arbitration agreement that was enforced? And about six or seven years ago, the California Supreme Court took this issue up in a case called Iscanian. And in Iscanian, they held that PAGA was completely different than a class action, that PAGA waivers in arbitration were unenforceable, and that PAGA had to proceed on a representative or on a non-individual basis. So that rule from Iskanian was the rule that the Supreme Court was deciding whether or not it was consistent with the federal law, which is called the Federal Arbitration Act.
0: And what did the Supreme Court hold on this issue?
1: So the Supreme Court held eight to one. And interestingly, the only justice who dissented was Clarence Thomas for reasons that aren't terribly relevant here. But they held 8 to 1 that you can compel arbitration of a PAGA claim on an individual basis. In other words, not a representative action on behalf of other employees. And the reasoning they gave was very similar to the reasoning that they gave in the Concepcion case, that large PAGA cases with lots of employees, with lots of damages, and with lots of reasons for potential violations are inconsistent with the purpose of arbitration to be streamlined. So as a result of that, you could compel arbitration on an individual basis, or as we used to say, you could force employees to waive a representative claim on behalf of other employees. The interesting feature of the opinion, which not a lot of people anticipated, was that the Supreme Court seemingly left a little bit of a door cracked open to the California legislature to change the law. And before I explain what I mean by that, I just want to give you a little background. So in the last 25-ish years, the Supreme Court has been very, very favorable to arbitration agreements. That is, the U.S. Supreme Court has been. And if you look at the history of Supreme Court decisions in the last 25 years on arbitration agreements, the vast majority of them stem from cases that came in California. And the reason why is that the California courts are very hostile to arbitration agreements and the the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is very favorable to them. That necessarily brings the two of them into conflict. And ultimately, the Supreme Court, if there's a federal question, has the final say in it. So most of the time you see an arbitration decision in the Supreme Court, it comes from California because of that hostility to arbitration agreements. So what happened here is that the majority, the eight justice majority, found that this person did not have standing to pursue the case on a non-individual basis. But they made a point of saying that these cases are not the same as class actions. And they pointed to a couple other situations where one party could represent another party or large groups of parties. So, for example, what they talked about in a lot of detail was shareholder derivative actions, where one shareholder to a company sues the company on behalf of many other shareholders based on a supposed misrepresentation that the company made that caused the stock price to decrease. And they said that a PAGA claim is not all that different from a shareholder derivative action. But nevertheless, they found that you could compel arbitration of PAGA claims on an individual basis. Sonia Sotomayor, who was one of the judges in the majority, pointed out that in her opinion, because of the nature, because of the reasoning of the Supreme Court, that It is possible that the California legislature could amend the law to try and make it so that employees could somehow avoid these representative actions.
0: And reading those tea leaves, do you believe it's likely that the California legislature will try to amend PAGA?
1: I think the answer is definitely yes, they will. Whether they are successful in doing so in a way that doesn't run afoul of the Federal Arbitration Act or the Supreme Court cases that's a different story. In California the legislative session ends at the end of August. So, as you may have heard, this probably wasn't the biggest news to come out of the Supreme Court in the last few weeks. There were a couple other major decisions which the legislature in California is grappling with and which the governor, Governor Gavin Newsom has been very upfront in all the media talking about. So I would say it's probably unlikely that in this legislative term, the legislature is going to amend the statute. I think it requires a lot of thought, and I think it's a very difficult issue to resolve. I mean, how would they go about doing it? There are a lot of different theories I've seen out there, the most prominent of which is that the court would allow the individual to pursue the individual claim in arbitration, and then bring the representative claim subsequently in court. I don't know that that is going to work. I think that there is a good argument to the contrary, that the person, once they resolve their individual claim, wouldn't have, again, that word comes up, they wouldn't have standing to pursue the representative claim. You know, But that's an issue that the courts likely will grapple with and certainly that the legislature is going to grapple with as well. And there's one more wrinkle to throw into the mix here, which is that a few years back, Governor Newsom signed a law which was called AB 51, Assembly Bill 51. That's a bill that Jerry Brown, when he was the governor, vetoed at least two or three times. And he said that it was clearly preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. But what AB 51 says is that you can't force an employee to arbitrate a claim against an employer as a condition of employment. Now, when that law was challenged in the lower courts, the lower courts found that it was preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. And it went up to a panel, a three-person panel, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, and they found that it was not preempted, or at least not preempted in large part. The employer in that case wanted to take the case up to what's called the in-bank Ninth Circuit, meaning the entire Ninth Circuit, every judge on the Ninth Circuit, which I think there are about 20 or more judges. And the Ninth Circuit said that they were going to wait for Viking River to be decided before they made a decision about whether they take AB 51 up on an in-bank appeal. Even if they don't take it up, the employer could take it up at the Supreme Court and I strongly suspect that they would have a receptive audience at the Supreme Court that AB 51 is preempted. So the question is, what's going to happen with AB 51? What's the California legislature going to do? And the best answer I can give you right now is that you have to sit down and relax and wait and see, because it's it's not entirely clear to anyone what's going to happen. I will say, I strongly suspect That the Chamber of Commerce case, which is the one in front of the Ninth Circuit, that that will be somehow challenged on appeal, whether it's at the Bank Ninth Circuit or whether it's at the Supreme Court.
0: And how do you see employers reacting to this decision in the meantime?
1: Mostly with glee. They are happy that they now have an avenue to challenge these claims. Some of them do not have arbitration agreements with PAGA waivers because the Ascanian decision said that they were unenforceable. So for the last seven years, everyone's been operating under the assumption that they are enforceable. Some do. Those people are generally more gleeful. Everyone, every employer I have talked to is thinking about either having an arbitration agreement with a class action and PAGA waiver or revising the one that they already have. Because the Supreme Court had a couple observations that were challenging insofar as the language that arbitration agreements have used. They also, by the way, it's worth mentioning, they also focused a lot on what typically is a boilerplate clause that lawyers like us don't spend a lot of time thinking about, what's called a severability clause. And a severability clause says if one portion of the agreement is illegal we can sever that from the agreement and we can keep the rest of it and in this particular case they had a good severability clause but i have seen employers who are rethinking their paga waivers who are rethinking their severability clauses and so there's a lot there's a lot to consider my personal view is that if you are not considering whether to have a paga waiver in an employment agreement you're making a big mistake You should at least consider it. It's something that requires careful thought right now.
0: And what do you think is the most efficient way for employers who have employees in California to put that kind of agreement in place for just the general at-will employee?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to do it is to have a standalone arbitration agreement that is signed as part of the onboarding process. If you're an employer who doesn't have an arbitration agreement in place for your existing employees, then there are ways to do that for your existing employees as well.
0: Well, Dan, this has been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure there's more to come, and we hope you can join us back on the program to update our listeners on any new developments. Thanks so much for your time and talking through this issue with us.
1: Thank you, Tara. It's great speaking with you.
0: If you'd like to connect with Dan, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ELA.law. In addition, you can search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Stingley. Thanks for listening.